Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Hello everyone, my name is Ethan and it's a real joy to be speaking to you now. Um, Thanks for having me here. Uh, Let's pray together. Father God, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would speak. Help us to hear your words clearly. And we pray that your spirit would be doing its deep work in our hearts, enabling us to seek Jesus and his perfect ways. Amen. Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are has captured the imagination of children since it was released in 1963. It tells the story of Max, a young boy who leaves his family, his home, and his supper, and chooses instead to sail away to where the wild things are. And sure enough, Max finds them. They roar their terrible roars and gnash their terrible teeth roll their terrible eyes and show their terrible claws. But Max is not afraid. In a moment of pure confidence and total power, he raises his hands up and says, Be still. And just like that, the beasts are still and they make Max their king. Max rules the land as you might expect any young child would do. He says, go this way, and the wild things go this way. Max says, go that way, and the wild things go that way. Max says, dance, and the wild things dance. Max says, prance, and the wild things prance. It's all awesome fun for Max, as it would be for you or I. But after some time passes, Max has enough. The smell of the supper he has left behind wafts into the picture, And after the thrill of playing king for a day dies away, Max just wants to be where he's loved best of all. And so he returns home. This child's book captures in the space of a few pages two really different desires in the heart of the one child. The thrill of power and the longing for love. That desire to rule over all and the desire to be safe in the arms of those who love you. We live in a culture that has a complex relationship with power. We Australians are known for our tall poppy syndrome. We love to mock people with power and people without power who think they have it. We cut the tall poppy down and lift up the little guy. Really, it's, it's a likable trait in some ways, but the danger is that we have too low, view of power of, too low a view of power and authority. It can mean that we undercut those who have power just because they have power. And it can also mean in our own lives that we avoid acknowledging the power that we each have and harnessing it for God's glory. The formula can become power equals evil, Let's avoid it ourselves or cut down those who have it. At the same time, we live in a city that longs for power. 
Have you noticed there's a ladder to climb up in almost every context that we find ourselves in? The political ladder, the economic ladder, the social ladder, the promotion ladder at your workplace. And then we read a book like Where the Wild Things Are and we see little Max telling big, scary, hairy creatures what to do and where to go. And we think, that sounds pretty fun. We all long for the ability to exercise our own kinds of power. And we live in a culture of contradictions then. And as a result, it's possible to have too high a view of power or too low a view of power. And so the question becomes, how do we handle power? Today, we will dig into Daniel 6, a famous chapter. It's Daniel in the lion's den, his great confrontation with the lions of Babylon. But at its heart, this passage isn't a conflict between man and beast. God's word for us today goes far deeper than that. Daniel 6 invites us to look at the relationship between humans and power, and we're going to see today what little Max seems to know intuitively in his heart. That striving for the kind of power that makes us ultimate rulers of our own world is exhausting work. Instead, it all beautifully clicks into place for us when we give up striving for power or we give up being spooked by power and instead place ourselves in the arms of the one whose use of power is perfect. I have three points for us to just draw some of this stuff out. Uh, Point one, the dangers of power. Point two, the paradox of power. And finally, point three, the fruit of faithful following. Let's dive into it. Point one, the dangers of power. We jump into this chapter at a point of high political tension. The Medo-Persian Empire has just taken over Babylon, and so we come to chapter 6 and we meet a new king, Darius. Being the new king in town, Darius sets up a new regime. He appoints 120 people to the office of satrap, as well as three presidents who have authority over the satraps. One of these presidents is, quite remarkably, the exiled Jew, Daniel. In Australia, we do what we can to keep anyone who has allegiance to a foreign power out of office. If you're a citizen of another country, you're not allowed to run for election here. But this is not the case in Babylon. Daniel occupies the position of president and does his job so well that King Darius plans to promote him above the role of president to a position of unrivaled power over the whole kingdom. Daniel's colleagues, on the other hand, get no promotion and cannot stomach the sight of Daniel's growing authority. Have a look with me from verse 4. The presidents and the satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against Daniel in connection with the kingdom, but they could find no grounds for complaint or any corruption because he was faithful and no negligence or corruption could be found in him. The men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. It's not entirely clear why the satraps want Daniel out of the picture. It may be because they want his job, 
Or it might be that Daniel's integrity has meant that they can't get away with their own corrupt dealings. In any case, it's clear that the use of their power here is totally motivated by selfish gain, as they work to remove a man whose service of the kingdom has been without fault. And all of a sudden, we're beginning to see the dangers of power at work. So a plan is hatched. It's carefully crafted and perfectly packaged to skewer Daniel. The satraps and the president suggested Darius that he should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that whoever prays to anyone, divine or human, for 30 days except to the king shall be thrown into the den of lions. Darius is the new king in a new town who needs to cement his power. And he's flattered by the suggestion that he might play the role of God for a while. For that is what the Babylonian leaders are suggesting, that Darius be the only one who anyone can pray to. Blinded by his own vanity, Darius cannot see that there's no way he can handle that kind of power. He doesn't consider that he might not be able to hear all the prayers of his subjects let alone answer them. But nonetheless, he is flattered, and so he signs the interdict into law. Though we are dealing with a uh, specific political situation 2,500 years or so in the past, the dangers of power are as present for us as, it, as they are back then. In order for us to get that, it's worth acknowledging that Uh, Power is something we all have. It can be a product of a formal position of leadership, but it doesn't have to be. Power is exercised within family relationships, social groups, and team sports, in interactions with the waiter who waits on our table, in a conversation between an older person and a younger person, a person with qualifications in a particular area, and a person without Uh, You could probably think of uh, any context that you're in and you'll find that there is power within those contexts. It is everywhere. Knowing that we uh, each have power in our own ways, um, here's just two reflections from the passage on the dangers of power, the kinds of things that are uh, worth avoiding. Firstly, there's a temptation to use our power selfishly. And this is exactly the danger that the satraps fall into, because power is an enabling force. It enables us to do what we want in a particular situation. And so the temptation is that we use our power to achieve our own selfish ends. And it means that in any given situation, the temptation is to work for our own name instead of God's name. Secondly, there's a temptation to think our powers are without limitation. Darius is the king of the land, but there are clear limits to his power, even though he doesn't recognize it. Our powers also can only achieve so much. And that's hard to come to terms with in a culture that says, you can do anything that you set your mind to. The problem is, if our power has no limits, then why would we ever look to a God? 
And that's the danger of thinking our power has no limits. We turn ourselves into God and miss God completely. That's the dangers of power. Point two, the paradox of power. Unlike the other powerful people in the chapter, Daniel does not suffer from the temptations of power we've just talked about. And this makes sense because, in part, he is the person who is most willing to give his power up. And we know, too, that we are most free from a love of power when we are willing to give our power up. But this is often easier said than done, and it should be particularly hard for Daniel because Daniel has a lot of power. Tremper Longman, a biblical commentator, captures Daniel's power beautifully. Uh, He says this, and the words should come on the screen. We see the Hebrew sage climb the political ladder from captive prisoner to initiate to sage to chief sage to administrator over the province of Babylon to the king's personal advisor, to third ruler in the kingdom, to the prime minister that the king himself intends at the beginning of chapter 6 to set over the entire kingdom. Darius's interdict threatens this rise to power. If Daniel chooses to stop praying to God, then he keeps his life and with it the power he has accumulated plus the power he's about to receive with his promotion. If Daniel prays to God, he loses it all. But instead of toing and froing, weighing up the pros and cons as you might expect, Daniel's decision is decisive. Verse 10 says, Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room open toward Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him just as he had done previously. By getting on his knees in prayer, Daniel forfeits his lofty position in the kingdom, but he hasn't forfeited everything. Daniel adopts the praying stance, which is not without power, though it has involved giving up a lot of power, because it's a powerful person that prays. Not because the person themselves is powerful, but because in praying, the person calls out to and draws upon the one who has ultimate power. And so, could it just be that praying to God at this moment is the safest thing for Daniel to do in this dangerous situation? We could consider an alternative. Instead of praying to God, Daniel could pray to Darius, the king, for help. And that would make sense for a few reasons. Uh, Firstly, he'd be obeying the law of the land. And uh, secondly, Darius is the king and he has the power. Surely he could help. But when Darius finds out Daniel is destined for the den, he's greatly distressed and makes every effort to save Daniel without success. The problem is for Darius that the Persians recognize the wisdom of their king by supposing that whatever law is made by the king is so wisely made that there could be no occasion to alter it. And this is the great irony of the passage. Darius is skewered by his own law. He can't save Daniel. 
Uh, we know that uh, the culture we live in tells us to reach out and grasp our reality. But for those in our culture who realize their power will fall short, they turn to another alternative, and that is to run to something else with power and to cling to it. The power of romantic love, the power of the government, the power of the celebrity. But the power of worldly institutions and people cannot carry us through. This is something that Daniel knows deeply in his heart. And so he gets on his knees to pray. Tim Chester, a uh, Christian pastor and writer from uh, England, says, When we bring our requests before God, we're affirming that he's both willing and able We glorify both his power and his love. Daniel is so sure of God's power and his love, so he looks to no one else but God. And we too can be sure of God's power and love on this side of the cross. Our second reading today from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says... Uh, that the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. In Jesus' death, we see that God is willing to save. His love for us is so deep that in seeing our powerlessness, he acts and acts for us. It's an act that looks foolish to the world because it it leaves Jesus on a cross dying. But it's an act that demonstrates God's total love, his total willingness. That's Jesus' death. And on the flip side, in Jesus' resurrection, we see that God is fully able. This moment of victory over death shows that, like Jesus, if we entrust ourselves to him, we will rise again too. We no longer need to uh, grasp after power, actually, when we begin to get this, because God's power achieves everything that we need. And so the more that uh, we delight in the reality of God's power and his love, which we see on the cross, the less we will feel the need to grasp at power for ourselves. And here, here lies the paradox of power. We are most secure, actually at our most powerful when we entrust ourselves to God's power, not our own. Which brings me to point three, the fruit of faithful following. What then does it look like to follow God in a culture that has too low a view of power and too high a view of power? Well, I think it's well, I think what we see in this chapter is that both giving up and taking on power are important postures for the Christian who is looking to submit their life to the Lordship of Christ. Daniel has power, and he doesn't run from it throughout the book, as if it's a great evil. Instead, what faithful obedience to God looks like for Daniel is using the power he has as a president in a way that gives glory to God and works for the fame of God's name. It is then at the moment in which holding on to power would be to the detriment of his relationship with God 
that Daniel is able to let it go. But he has the flexibility that adopts that enables him to adopt both postures. For us, in our own workplaces, in our own families, in the social groups we move in, in our church family even, the question might be that we ask ourselves, how willing are we to give up the power we have in those contexts for the sake of God? We can also flip that question on its head though. In those same contexts, how willing are we to recognize our power and use it for the sake of God? We're able to exercise this kind of flexibility when we fall more deeply in love with Jesus and the way that he uses his power. It's in looking to Jesus that we see the way that we might take power up ourselves. And so the shape that our use of power takes looks radically different from the way that our culture uses power. For we are followers first and leaders second. And in our use of power, we want to be pointing people to God and not to ourselves. In following God, we might actually lead others to him. And this is exactly what happens in the passage. Daniel has been trapped in the den. And at the break of day, after a sleepless night, Darius hurries to the den, desperate to see if Daniel's alive. And Daniel's response says it all. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me. Daniel gives the praise to God. It was God who shut the mouths of the lions, not a work of Daniel's own strength, and it is to God that Daniel points. So when Darius reflects on the miracle later on in the passage... He knows exactly who to give the praise to. The king who at the beginning was wrapped up in the use of his own power ends up praising the one whose kingdom will never be destroyed, the one with ultimate power. And here lies the fruit of faithful following, that in following Jesus, being followers of him, laying down our power, we might also point others to him. The more that uh, we get the way that this power works out in our lives, the more we will become people who uh, don't have a too low view of power, but also don't have a too high view of power. We'll be people who aren't controlled by power or spooked by power. And we'll be people who are able to use our limited but very real power for the glory of God. Please join me as I pray. Father God, we marvel at your word and the way that it makes sense of who we are and the world we live in. We thank you that you are a God whose total power is paired with total love. A God who is both willing and able to save. We ask that you would help us to uh, take in your word here and help us to fall more in love with the majesty and wonder of Jesus, whose use of power is 
uh, beautifully countercultural and radically life-transforming. Would you uh, fashion us to be more like him? Amen.